Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need one, get their attention. And they'll give you one of those that's already marked at James chapter 1. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So I wonder, has anyone ever asked you that? To give a reason for the hope that you have. It's an assumption in the Bible that some will ask us what makes us tick. Why it is that we're different. But that question's only going to be asked of us if indeed we've been transformed by Jesus Christ. If the people who know us aren't curious about us, then perhaps it's because we're not showing anything different in our attitudes, in our words, and in our actions. If you handle financial blessing, for example, the same way as the world, buying toys because you can afford them, then why would anyone ask you what makes you different? Or consider family relationships. Where does Jesus fit into our marriage and parenting strategies? If we talk about our spouses negatively, or we don't talk about them at all, we're showing the same low view of God's institution as the world has. If when the going gets tough in our marriages, we opt out, whether emotionally or physically or both, we're doing nothing different than what the world does all the time. If our parenting priorities are like those of the world, why should anyone see any difference and ask us about it? For instance, the world treats children kind of like they would a valuable pet. You get one or two or three or whatever because of what it or he or she will do for you. I want a baby in the world's parlance is not much different than I want a puppy. In fact, I even want a particular type. I want a boy or I want a girl. And if I don't get the one I want the first time, I might try again. And if I have all boys and I wanted a girl or vice versa, I'll be somewhat sad because I didn't get what I wanted. I may determine the number simply based on my convenience. One is enough. I can't handle more than two. Now, let me just caution. There is wisdom to be exercised in determining the size of a family. But it's not to be based on the same criteria the world uses. What type do I want and how many constitute a hassle for me? But we think this way because just like the world thinks, our children are for us. The children are for me. Friends, the Bible teaches that children are a great blessing. But they are first and foremost about God and not us. So whether he gives me one or two or four or whether they're male or female, God's purpose is still the same. Did you know that? To produce image bearers. Or take our schedules and our priorities. If our schedules are consumed with what we like to do and there's nothing missional about it, why would anyone ask about a difference since that's what everybody does? If we handle stress the same way as the world, why in the world would anyone of the world be prompted to ask, what makes you tick? If you get angry and you're bitter and you're joyless, how's that going to prompt anyone to see any difference? 
They won't be prompted to ask what makes you tick. But very often, unfortunately, they'll be very aware of what gets you ticked. The verse I have on the screen actually starts this way. It starts with, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. You see, whether I think and talk and live in a different way, one that would cause someone to ask about it depends on what I believe about Jesus. If I really believe that Jesus is Lord, if I really believe that, it'll make a radical difference in my behavior. So do I believe that? Do you believe that? Is Jesus Lord? We sing that, don't we? He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. But we really have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? And in the abstract, certainly the answer for us is yes. If I'm taking a theological exam and I'm asked to name some titles for Jesus, Lord may well be one that I'd list. But God's exam for us is not on paper. It's in my life. Is Jesus Lord in my circumstances? And is Jesus Lord of my circumstances? The truth is, if we're honest, the answer to that is yes, while I'm at church. But not when I get in the car. Not this afternoon. Not the rest of the week. James says that what we claim to believe needs to be put to the test. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, He speaks of, uses this phrase, the testing of your faith. And I pointed out to you many times that the word faith, the Greek word translated faith in your New Testament, is related to the same word for believe or belief. So you could see in verse 3 of chapter 1, the testing of your belief. The testing of what you really believe. Now you see, friends, the book that you hold in your hand, the Bible, is God's change agent. And God's change project in you and me began when he gave us life through the word of truth, according to verse 18 of chapter 1. And therefore, we should be, according to verse 19, eager to listen to the word. And in order for us to do more than merely listen, chapter 1 tells us we need the humility to see ourselves as we are, warts and all. We looked at that last week and the necessity of that. And so verse 21 tells us to humbly accept the word planted in you. Last week we saw from verses 22 through 25 that although the Bible is intended to help us change, its purpose is only achieved if we approach it with a desire to be changed. Verses 23 and 24 speak of the man who looks into the Bible as he would a mirror, but he comes to it without purpose. Perhaps we come to the Bible simply out of habit or because we can say we did it. I went to church today. And so we look, but we foolishly go away unkempt and unchanged. But verse 25 gives us God's design for his word and the approach that we should take to it. Notice verse 25. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. The title of last week's message was Change for the Better. And you see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to look at that. Today the title is How to Change for the Better. And both of these messages, last week and this week, are part of a mini-series. Today's the second of three weeks that we're calling The Transformation of the Gospel. 
Now, as indicated in the footnote at the bottom of your insert, I'm indebted to Tim Chester in a book called You Can Change for many of the insights in this, this message. The transformational change that the gospel provides is needed for us because sin has entered God's originally good world. The image of God needs to be restored because that image has been broken. The harmony that existed between us and our world and our God is severed. We originally viewed ourselves and our world and the Creator through lenses that were untainted by sin. Our worldview, the way that we see everything, was one in which, in the words of Chester, we found true freedom, embracing God's reign over our lives and trusting His reign to be a wise and good one. And that's the interpretation of life that brings joy and peace. But we know the sad story that in the Garden of Eden, the serpent persuaded our first parents to doubt the goodness of God's rule. Satan offered a different worldview, one that portrayed God as a tyrant whose rule should be rejected. Adam and Eve took and ate the fruit because they believed this lie about God. Sin began with humanity disbelieving God's word. And having believed the lie, now Adam and Eve's children, you and me, we are all susceptible to lies now. We believe the wrong things. We desire the wrong things. Today we're going to look at how to change for the better. We're going to see truths that we need to continually turn to, that we need to continually believe in order to counteract the lies that we so often believe. We saw how failure to truly believe that Jesus is Lord affects us in very practical ways at the beginning of my comments. We're going to see other ways in which unbelief affects us in practical ways today. We need to ask God to help us, so let's do that now. Father, we come to you humbled by the truth of who we are and what our tendencies are. Our attention is so easily distracted away from you into other things and people. Oh, Lord, help us in this sacred hour to focus our attention upon you and what you say in your word. May we have attentive minds and open hearts to indeed be changed as you show us how to be. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sinful acts always have their origin in some form of unbelief. Sinful acts always originate with some form of something that I fail to believe rightly about God or about myself or about his world or about others. Some form of unbelief. In fact, in that outline that I've asked you to pull out up at the top there, we say behind every sin and behind every negative emotion is a lie. Behind every sin and negative emotion is a lie. The root of all of our behavior and our emotions is the heart. What the heart trusts and what the heart treasures. And we are given over to sinful desires because the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we continually have this battle going on within us, even after we, we come to Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 says, you must no longer live as unbelievers do. 
in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, remember, friends, we're born into this world with a sin nature, so we naturally think in sinful patterns. The passage I just read says we naturally think in futile ways and our understanding is tainted by sin. And this still afflicts us even after we've come to Christ because indwelling sin remains, including intellectual sin. That is sin in the way I think, thinking about ourselves and God and others falsely. We sin because we believe the lie that we are better off without God. That his rule over us is oppressive and that we would be really free without him. We believe that sin offers more than God does. And this is true in the moment that we commit every sin and engage in every negative emotion. We're engaging in some form of unbelief about God. I may worry about money because I believe the lie that material goods give meaning to my life or because I believe God doesn't care about me. I may commit adultery or get depressed about my singleness because I believe the lie that intimacy with another person will give me more than God can give me. Every time we don't trust God's word, we're believing something else, and that something else is always a lie. Just take something as seemingly mundane as getting angry while in, stuck in traffic. Why do I get angry? Why do you get angry? Well, at bottom, friends, it's because we don't trust God. I believe the lie that God isn't in control. Is God in control of that traffic jam? But in that moment, I don't believe God's in control. Or I don't believe that his purposes for me in this moment are good. And many of our negative emotions are sinful because they're really symptoms of unbelief. The root sin of all the others. Unbelief. Now, when we're depressed, it may be because there's a chemical imbalance for which medication is required. But it may be because we believe that God isn't being good to us or that he's not in control. That's why the Bible says at the end of Romans 14, everything that does not come from faith, everything that does not come from belief is sin. Now, we don't tend to think of ourselves as unbelievers, do we? Because that's a synonym for non-Christians. We call ourselves believers. But all too often, our belief is really in theory, not in practice. We believe on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, those truths we affirmed in church make little or no difference in our lives. Friends, let us be honest. Very often, we are functionally unbelievers. Practically unbelievers. Now, if we recognize that behind every sin is a lie, the good news is it'll point us forward to the way out of our sinful behavior and emotions. The book of Proverbs speaks of that that way forward for us. It says the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son Pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. And above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That passage is full of hope if you look at it properly. 
If you feel trapped in your struggle, whatever your struggle is, if you have negative emotions that are weighing on you, if you see them as symptoms of unbelief, then you've taken a first major step on this road to recovery. Because seeing the problem clearly causes you to see the answer clearly. And Proverbs tells us the answer is looking to God in believing who God is and what God can do. And as you travel that path of belief moment by moment and day by day, then that passage in Proverbs tells us God's goodness shines ever brighter till the full light of day. We follow that road by paying attention to the word of God, says that passage. God's word is our roadmap. The gracious promises of God give true life and health and the truth will guard our hearts and therefore guard our lives. The psalmist said it famously this way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But you feel trapped. And in a sense, you feel trapped for good reason. Because Jesus said this when he walked the earth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But the good news is, Jesus said just before that, just a few verses before that in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Lies lead to slavery. Truth leads to freedom. And the truth that sets us free, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, is the gospel. Freedom is found in the truth that we were made to worship God, that we were made to serve God, and we are made to trust God. Freedom is found in acknowledging that we're responsible for the mess that we've made of our lives, that our problems are rooted in our hearts, that we deserve God's judgment, and that we desperately need God. Freedom is found in accepting that God's in control of our lives, that this God is gracious and he forgives those who come to him in faith. If I'm enslaved by, for example, my worries, then freedom is found in trusting in the sovereign care of my heavenly father. If I'm enslaved by the need to prove myself, then freedom is found in trusting that I'm fully justified before God and I can't prove myself ultimately before him. I'm justified in his sight through the atoning work of Jesus. And the Bible, this roadmap for us out of the slavery that the lies trap us in. The Bible tells us about this God and all about this God. And his character qualities and his attributes. And each of them, if they are fully embraced, friends, are an antidote, an answer to sin. There are many attributes that could be listed and fleshed out. I want to highlight four. Four of them. We say in your outline that these are truths that we must continually turn to. The first is this. God is great. So we do not have to be in control. God is great. And what that means is we do not have to be in control. Let me remind you that God's greatness is seen in the very first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A God with the power to create the universe can literally do anything that's consistent with his character. Isn't that true? If you believe in a God like that, how could you ever believe that your situation is hopeless? 
And yet some of you, even this week, have said, it's hopeless. How could someone who believes in the God who made the universe ever say that, ever believe that? And further, God not only created the world, he did it without breaking a sweat, if you recall. The Bible tells us that he spoke and it came to be, let there be light, and there was light. When God rested on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was worn out. It was simply because he was done. He ceased creating. Failure to believe in God's greatness, God's power, and God's sovereign control has real-world effects for us in the daily grind. Chester gives a number of examples. Alan is sitting on the train. Inexplicably, it's stopped just outside the station. He's getting angry because it looks as if he'll miss his hospital appointment. Beth is stressed. Replacing the family car has wiped out their savings. Now she's worried that they won't have enough money at the end of the month. When her husband comes home with an expensive-looking bunch of flowers to cheer her up, she bursts into tears. Colin's getting very frustrated. He's trying to get a new community project going, but everything seems to be going wrong. As a result, he's getting irritable with his children. Dorothy's lying awake at night thinking about her friend Eileen. Eileen seems to be slipping into postnatal depression. Dorothy's looked after Eileen's baby a couple of times, but she has her own responsibilities. She wishes she could do more and worries because she can't. Who's big enough to handle those situations? Do you believe that God is great? In Mark chapters 4 and 5, we have a, a grouping of stories in which Jesus demonstrates his complete control over everything. The natural world, the spirit world, over sickness, even over death. And Jesus, in chapter 4 of Mark, calms the raging sea with a word. He heals the demon-possessed man by his command. He heals a sick woman by simply speaking a word to her. And the summary of that entire section is found in Jesus' command, quote, Do not fear, only believe. Now, those stories don't teach that we're never going to face sickness or death, friends. Instead, they teach us that we needn't fear the circumstances of life because God is in control. He works good for us in every circumstance. He will bring us safely home to glory. And death does not have the last word. The last word belongs to Jesus as when he raised a young girl from the dead in Mark chapter 5. And he said, little girl, I say to you, arise. So what happens when you don't truly trust God's sovereign control? Well, all kinds of bad things happen. You might try to take control yourself in harmful ways like manipulation or domination. You might wear yourself out with busyness or frustration because it all depends on you. You might make your security and wealth a bigger priority than God's kingdom. You might worry. We might become preoccupied with the bills and money becomes our main obsession. And all because we don't believe our Father knows what we need and is able and willing to provide what is best for us. We don't believe. So Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Oh, 
you of little notice. Belief. Oh, you of little faith. Do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. and Your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. You've got to ask yourself. I've got to ask myself. Do I believe God is great? Do I believe God is great? Monday through Saturday. Not just on Sunday. And if so, then I don't have to be in control. Here's a second truth that we need to continually turn to. God is glorious. So we do not have to fear others. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. One common motivation for sin is that we crave the approval of people or we fear their rejection. We think we need the acceptance of others, and so we're controlled by getting it. The Bible's phrase for this is the fear of man. The fear of man. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25 speaks of it. It says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says fear of man has many symptoms. It makes us susceptible to peer pressure. It makes us susceptible to needing something from a spouse. It makes us overly concerned with self-esteem. It causes us to be overcommitted because we can't say no. Ever thought of that? Sometimes the you know fastest right arm in the West that volunteers for everything, that that person deep down is very often motivated by an over-reverence of fear of man. I want people to think well of me, so I jump into everything. Or fear of being exposed. We tell small lies to make ourselves look good. People make us jealous, angry, depressed, or anxious. We avoid people. We compare ourselves with others. We fear evangelism. We fear speaking up for Jesus because we fear what people will think about us. Our culture tries to overcome that problem by finding ways to bolster our self-esteem, but that actually compounds the problem. We come to become dependent on whoever or whatever is going to boost our self-esteem. And as we saw last week, in reality, low self-esteem is really thwarted pride. We don't have the status we think we deserve. We elevate desires that are often good in themselves, a desire for love or affirmation or respect. But we elevate them to the level of needs without which we cannot be whole, we think. And so we talk of needing the approval or acceptance of others. But our true need is to glorify God and to love people. The answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. We need a big view of God. And to fear God is to respect, worship, trust, and submit to Him. It's the proper response to His glory, the manifestation of His character, His holiness, His power, His love, His goodness, His wrath. That's why the Lord asks, To whom will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. 
If we revere the Lord for who he is, then we need not revere people so that we're controlled by their expectations. The fear of God, the reverence for God is liberating. We take people's expectations seriously now if we fear God because we want to love them as God commanded, but not because we're enslaved by them. We don't serve them for what we can get in return, approval or affection or security or whatever it is. By submitting to Christ's lordship, we're now free to serve others truly in love. It's liberating. So God is great. Therefore, I don't have to be in control. And God is glorious in his character and all that he offers So I don't need to revere others over him. And then thirdly in your outline. God is good. So we do not have to look elsewhere. God is good. So we do not have to look elsewhere. Did you know that the invitation in the Bible to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, to obey God is not, contrary to what many people think, it's not a dreary staying away from everything that's enjoyable. Did you know that? Instead, it's a call to find in God that which truly satisfies. It's believing that we find lasting fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and identity in knowing God and no place else. Whatever, friends, sin offers, God offers more. Because God offers us himself. God isn't just good. God is better. Better than everything else. He's the source of all joy. But one of our problems is we think only of of moments. In the moment. And in the moment we think the pleasures of sin are real. And the joy of God is insubstantial or it's distant from us. But in truth, it's really the other way around. Every joy we experience, hear this, is but a shadow of the source of all joy, which is God. Every one of those sinful pleasures is just a poor shadow of the source of all joy. Take marriage, for example. Marriage is a reflection of the joy of union with God. And adultery is a distorted reflection. If you idolize marriage or if you commit adultery, you've settled for less than the living water that only Jesus gives. You remember Jesus talking to a woman at a well about living water? Jesus asked the woman to fetch her husband. And in the course of that conversation in John chapter 4, that seems like a little bit of a rabbit trail. But in fact, Jesus is getting straight to her heart. The truth is, she's had five husbands, and the man that she was with at that moment was not her husband. And she's been looking for meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in marriage and sex and intimacy. But they were all like water that left her thirsty again. Now, no doubt, in the moment, there was real pleasure. But it didn't, as it always does not. It didn't last. It wasn't the real thing. It left her thirsty. And there was a clear pattern in her life. The math tells you the story. Five husbands and now another guy who's not her husband. How's that all working out for you? She 
She had this pattern in her life. The question for you, for me, is what's the pattern in your life? Are the words, if only, a refrain? If only that hadn't happened. If only I would have attained this. If only I would have married somebody else. What for you comes after the if only? Fill in the blank. Do you really believe that God is good? Well, if you, as you sit here on a Sunday morning looking churchy, if you believe the gospel, if you believe that God came as man and gave himself for you, how can we but say God is good? And Romans chapter 8 says that. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him? Graciously give us all things. Anybody in here got a God who has ripped you off somehow? Not that God. Not the God who came and died for you. Not the God who promises to graciously give us all things for our good and for his glory. So friends, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. He's glorious. We don't have to fear others. He's good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is, fourthly, gracious. So we do not have to prove ourselves. As Tim Keller says, only in the Christian gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. In every other religion, and even in so-called Christian forms of religion, that are not gospel and Bible-based, in every other form, form of religion, you perform as best you can, you live as best you can, and then you hope to receive a good verdict from God when you stand at the pearly gates. But in the gospel, Jesus has perfectly performed. And those who are united to him have his righteousness and the penalty for all our sin has been paid in full. So now we can serve God not because of what we get, but because of what we've already been given. If you don't understand God's grace in the gospel, you'll wind up as many professing Christians. Living like the older brother in that story that Jesus told of the prodigal son. You remember that? If you remember that, you remember the younger brother after whom the parable is named. He's the prodigal, the younger one. But the story is really about two sons and the older one is a cautionary tale for us. After the younger brother has squandered his inheritance and he comes back home, rather than the father punishing him or even disowning him, he throws a lavish party in his honor. You remember the older brother is furious. He refuses to even participate in the party. After all, think about this. The money that's now being spent on the party for this kid is money that belongs to me in my inheritance. Not only did you squander yours, you're using mine now. The younger brother has broken faith, but instead of having to pay for it, he's being honored. 
The older brother is scandalized by God's grace to his younger brother. And all the older brother's hard work seems to count for nothing. And that's because he sees life like so many people do. That life is like a contract between us and God. We do good works and in return he blesses us. When things go well, we're filled with pride. But when they go badly, either we blame ourselves and feel guilty or we blame God and we feel bitter. And this often low-level, seething anger that we have often feels ill-defined. We're not even sure why we're angry. But in actuality, according to the Christian gospel, the contract between us and God already reads this, paid in full by the blood of Jesus. And only when we grasp God's grace are we free to serve him for his own sake, not for reward. Without understanding and appreciating and appropriating grace, friends, we'll not only work for reward, but the work itself will seem like drudgery. And that was the deal with the older brother in the story. He says to his father, all these years I have been, this is the word, slaving for you. We'll not only have joyless service apart from grace, while we're serving, it'll be an anxious performance as we try to show that we've made something of ourselves. That older, angry, joyless brother says to his father, I never disobeyed your orders. He wants people to know about his good works because he's trying to prove himself. There are people trying to perform day after day. Pastors trying to preach that elusive, perfect sermon. Parents trying to produce lovely children. Workers putting in long hours at work, all in a desperate attempt to prove ourselves. And some weeks we may feel that we've pulled it off, and other weeks it seems so fragile as if it might shatter. And so we live in a constant state of stress and busyness, always striving to put in another great performance, always worried that the charade might crumble. We can't justify ourselves, but the good news is, friends, we don't have to. God is gracious. And like the father in the story of the prodigal, he wraps his arms around us. He has received us in Jesus. And so what kind of God do you believe in? Is he gracious or is he a taskmaster that you slave to please? Here's how Nehemiah in the Old Testament spoke of God. You are a forgiving God. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. The 19th century theologian Charles Hodge says that true knowledge of Christ, quote, is not the apprehension of what he is simply by the intellect. But it also involves the corresponding feeling of adoration, delight, desire, and contentment. You see, friends, I'm challenging you in this message as to what you believe. But that's got to move from your head to your heart. It cannot be only intellectual knowledge. Hodge says it's not simply by the intellect, but it involves the corresponding feeling of adoration, delight, desire, and contentment. Seeing and knowing Christ isn't just receiving information, but it's recognizing Him as the one who is altogether lovely. It's embracing the truth about God and delighting in that truth. So do I desire God more than I desire sin?
So much so that I'm willing to believe even when it's difficult, even in difficult circumstances. But if I don't desire God more than I desire to sin, then our problem, says Sinclair Ferguson, is that we think with our feelings. We think with our feelings. We don't always feel joy in God. But by faith, we can tell ourselves that he is our joy. You hear that? Even when I don't feel it, I can preach to myself what God says is true. He is our joy. When we find ourselves tempted to engage in sinful behavior, or when we find that our emotions are getting the better of us, we need to speak truth to our hearts. Say the truth to yourself repeatedly so that it sinks in. Here, this truth. We've given you four. It's all wrapped up in this. This one line. God is all I need. And in those moments, you say it. Say it slowly. God is all I need. And I encourage you to say it out loud. Say it back to the Lord. Lord, you are all I need. This God, who is great and glorious and good and gracious... This God has told us about himself in his word and he's shown himself to us in his world. He's given us this instruction to help us. Your take home truth then is God has given us his word for the purpose of changing us. Now that's the same take home truth as last week because we're trying to drill that home. If we really believe what we read and say we believe in God's word, it will change us. Let's ask God to help us as we seek to serve him this coming week. Father, thank you for loving us enough to change us. Thank you for giving us instruction in your word. But those instructions you give us in your word are really revelation about you in your word. You've told us what to do and what not to do. And these are all revelations. They are all manifestations of your character. What meets the standard of who you are and what doesn't. And you've done all of this for our good because there is nothing greater, there is nothing good than knowing you, than having a relationship with you, You are the source of all joy, of every good and perfect gift comes to us from you. And everything that we experience in the moment, every pleasure even of sin, is a pale comparison, a pale shadow of the source from which it all comes. Oh, Lord God, help your people to see that. Help me to see that. Help us to see that all we need is you. And believing that, help us to repent of our unbelief. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help me, help our, help my, help our unbelief. And I pray that believing this week will make a difference. This afternoon, this week. That some who this week said there is no hope will remember, I can never say that if God is the all-powerful creator. Help them to remember that every good gift comes from you. And so the thing or persons that they are chasing after are ultimately nothing in comparison to the one who gives all. 
to remember that your goodness cannot be questioned. It absolutely is unimpeachable after the cross. And Lord, you are gracious. You forgive us. You stoop down to where we are. We can get off of the treadmill of performance and the stress and the anxiety and the worry that goes with it. Because of the good news of the gospel, the verdict has been given before the perform- our performance because Jesus has performed. Oh, Lord God, thank you for these precious truths. Help us to remember them this week and to apply them. May it make a difference for good in our lives and for the glory that you have called us to display, reflecting you back to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.